All right, let's get started. Now, um, one thing, I don't know if you've ever played or you had to play because you've got children, the kids game hide and seek. Anyone got an experience with that hide and seek? I played it as a child, then I went through most of my life not playing it not been interested. I suddenly had children and it was suddenly a game they wanted to play. When my boys were a bit small and they are now, hide and seek was one of these fun games that they like to play in the house. Um, and it's entertaining playing it with small children because they are just rubbish at it. They are just, they are just terrible. I remember when our boys were a little bit younger and they'd say, Daddy, you play hide and seek. And I'd say, of course, I love to play hide and seek with you. And they would just do the crazy, the basically the dumbest things. They would, just, they would go and hide by just putting their hands over their eyes like this and go, Daddy, I'm hiding. I'm hiding. I'm like, I can see you. I can see you. You're not, you haven't gone anywhere. And then as they got a touch older, they kind of worked out, well, they had to leave the room and go and hide somewhere else. But even with that kind of advancement in knowledge, they still were pretty rubbish at it. Because what my boys would do, they would go and hide in a room and they would hide uh, you know, behind the door, behind the curtain or somewhere. And you would come in and go... Ready or not, I'm coming to find you. I've counted to whatever the number was. I'm coming to get you. And they would all start giggling. And they'd have these little lars, and you'd walk in the room, and you'd just hear them, like, sonar, yeah, I know exactly where you are, or something will be shaking because they're moving, because they can't sit still. Or Levi always had this thing go, Daddy, I'm in here. And I'm like, <laughs> I meant to come and find you. That's the idea. I meant to come and find you. So they were just really not very good at it. And then it got to the point where it's like, I'm not playing this game anymore with you, when... We're at my parents' house one time, and we were just having that time in the afternoon. We're playing hide-and-seek, and it was my turn to go hide. And so it was like, okay, I'm going to hide. And I said, I'm going upstairs, and there was a bunch of rooms upstairs, so I go and hide. And so I whipped upstairs while Levi was counting to whatever it was, 30. And I, I went into their room, and I thought, well, I'll dive in their bed, and I'll pull the duvet over me, because that will like, be kind of obvious, but a bit funny, that this big lump in the bed was me, and I had the duvet over my head. And I waited, and it all went quiet. And then I waited, and I waited, and it got, oh, gets a bit on down the duvet. And so I kind of look out, and I'm lying there. I think, this is quite nice, I'm comfortable, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and there's no movement, there's no noise, there's nothing. And then after several minutes, I kept giving it time. I thought, well, I could give them time. The kids are not very good at finding. I've got to give them time to come round. And the minutes trolled on and on and on. After about five minutes, I thought, this is ridiculous. Where are I? So I stuck my head out, nothing there, no one on the landing. I went downstairs, and he's sitting watching the telly with his grandparents. And I'm like, Levi, what are you doing? He's like, I'm watching telly with Granny and Grandpa. And I'm like, I was hiding. We're in the middle of the game. And he's like, oh, yeah, Daddy, sorry, I, I'm watching telly. And so he was just going to leave me there. And at which point I was like, right, we're not playing this game anymore. That's it. You, you, we've, we've moved on. We're going to find something else to do. And what we're going to look at today is this whole idea of trying to hide things. And trying to hide things from God. And when you try and hide things from God, it is an absolutely futile endeavor. You can't hide from God. Just like my kids really couldn't hide from me. I knew where they were. You can't hide things from God because God knows everything. And what we're going to look at is a situation today where someone tried to hide something from God. And there was disastrous consequences. And what we do at this church is we like to preach through books of the Bible. At a time, we like to go through everything. And what that makes us do is we get to deal with good bits in the Bible that we like, that kind of like, oh, make us feel good. We find out that God loves us, and we're his children, and we're forgiven, and we find out about Jesus as our Savior. And there are excellent bits that make us sort of feel good and lift us up. But there are also bits that make us feel uncomfortable. There are bits that make us think, oh, dear, 
There may be bits that maybe kind of scratch our head and question things. There's suddenly we realize that God is actually awesome in the truest sense of the word. That reverent fear of who he is in his character, which should be reflected in his people because he is different to us. He is other than us. He is above us. He is great in us. We cannot reduce him down to a box and make him our pet. He is so much bigger and greater than that. And the, the story we're going to look at today is one of those. You're welcome. Good for coming this morning. Um, but it's going, to be, it's going to be like that. So it's not going to be a whoop and cheer and clap one. It's more going to be a searching, uncomfortable one. Because even today, you can't hide things from God. He's here. He knows everything and everything about you. It's going to be good, isn't it? Okay, we're preaching through the book of Joshua. If you've missed this, we've got some sermons online on our website. You can go and have a listen to them. But let me brief, give you a kind of a, a, a brief run through of where we got to now. The book of Joshua in the Old Testament is a story of God's people. And God gave a promise to a man named Abraham hundreds of years before the book of Joshua takes place, saying, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to multiply you as a people. You're going to become great, mighty. You're going to numerically grow. And I'm going to give you this land to live in. Fast forward a few hundred years And you get to Joshua, and the people of God have come out of Egypt under Moses. Moses have died, hand over leadership to Joshua. And Joshua and the people of Israel, numbering possibly as many as a million of them, are about to enter the promised land and take it. That God, this promise God had given them, so they're right on, kind of on the edge of something incredible. And we see God speaking to them and saying, "You've got to be strong and courageous and follow my word, and I'm going to be with you." They've scoped out the land and seen it's ready for them to take. They've crossed the River Jordan which was the great barrier between them and the promised land. And God miraculously just stopped the river so they could all just pass through. And that was just the first five chapters of God getting them ready. They're then into the promised land. And we've seen in chapter 6, immediately preceding this, they've started taking the land that was theirs by taking the first city, which was Jericho. And Jericho is a very important city, very big, strong city. And it's one of the most kind of well-known stories in the book of Joshua where the walls came down. God miraculously just took down the walls of the city. The people of God took the city. And it was a great time of victory and celebration for people of God. So everything thus far in the book of Joshua has been going really well, really exciting. God's with them, God's speaking, good, good. They've now had a victory to celebrate on the back of all the miracles that God has done. Everything's going well. But if you look at the first verse of chapter 1, it's but. So you can see where this is going. All right, so that's where we are. So we've moved into chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, or what they call the warfare phase. We've had the preparation, the warfare of taking the land. Big idea of this morning is concealed and unconfessed sin hinders the purposes of God. Concealed and unconfessed sin hinders the purpose of God. Just take a minute to explain what that word sin is. If you've ever been around church or read any parts of your Bible, this word sin comes up again and again. And if you talk to Christians, they bang on about it. It's a big deal. But what is it? Well, when they wrote the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, They use five different words to try and encapsulate what this meant. And to give you an idea, there was an outward dynamic of it. And it meant, uh, the the words mean, one, it means to miss the target. It's a failure to attain a goal. If the goal is up here, it means falling short of it. So sin is falling short of some standard. And it would be God's holy, perfect standard, which we're all acutely aware of, that we fall short of. It also means, another word, is to step over a known boundary. It's sometimes translated trespass. 
where you step over a known boundary. Here is the line, you can go here, you can't go there, and actually you deliberately cross that boundary. Again, something we're all familiar with. Do not step on the grass. It's that the sign says, what do you want to do? Step on the grass. Another one is kind of lawlessness, which is basically a disregard for the known law. It says 30 mile now, but do you know what? It's a 40 road, really. So you want to drive it. That's what it means. That's where it's going. So all these things kind of sum up sin, these, this disregard for God's law, this willingness to kind of step over the mark. But also it's got an inward dynamic. There's a couple of words it uses for that. It talks about an inward corruption, a perversion of character. Something affects kind of our thinking, our emotions, our will. When we see that sign that says, don't step on the grass, what do you want to do? Step on the grass. And the fact the sign there kind of brings this up and it points to sin actually as an internal thing where we're actually, it's a, it's a perversion of character to go against God, rebelliousness, to want to dishonor God and come away, an inward corruption. And basically sin is self-centered rebellion from God. It's breaking God's commandments to love him and to love others, all those things. So ultimately, every time we sin, it's against God. He's the one who's the ultimate kind of sort of person who's affronted by sin. We may sin against others, but ultimately behind that there is a holy God that we are offending, which is why when King David, after committing adultery and murder, said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, talking to God. And actually there were other characters involved, but that's where he realized what it is. One of this... um, uh, a Bible commentator said this, Sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. It is, its essence is hostility towards God, issuing in active rebellion against him. So what we're going to look at today in chapter 7 is this whole area of sin and what it means and what it's about and the consequence of sin. And it's tied very closely with chapter 8 that we'll look at next week, but we're going to focus on that today. And what I've got today are five D's, so you can count them off. When you do a sermon and you can make them all begin with the same letter, you know you're on a winner. All right, so today is going to be top notch for you, and I didn't even have to push these. They just came to me. So I've got five D's. But let's find, um, let's read the first part. So we can read the first part of the passage. We'll go through it bit by bit. This is what it says. First word, but. Everything's been going really well begins with but. Got a problem. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against him. Sorry, burned against the people of Israel. Number one, first D, disguised. What's happened? They took Jericho, and one of the things God said to the people of Jericho, we're going to destroy it, but everything in the city is holy to me. You can't have anything. You can't take all the gold and the jewels and the precious stuff, the loot, you've got to come and give to me. It all belongs to me. It's kind of an offering to me as God of the first fruits, if you will, of the conquest of this land. He says, you don't get a thing. And that's what he said. It's very clear to the people of Israel. And he said it to Joshua, and Joshua told the people. And what did Achan do? Achan took something, it said. And so what can we, what can we learn? A couple of things. First one is sin cannot be hidden from God. Sin cannot be hidden from God. Something amazing has happened with the people of God. This great victory that we looked at has now, but within that, we've got this situation where someone 
has broken covenant with God. He has deliberately gone against specific commands. If you read chapter 6, 17, verses 17, 18, 19, God's really specific. You can't do that. And his man has deliberately done that. And he's put himself kind of in um, the place of rebellion and blatant disobedience against God and what he's done. And what we've got here, interestingly, is a parallel with what's happened in chapter 2. Remember chapter 2 was when the spies went into the land and they found a lady called Rahab. Who remembers Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite. She was one of the land. These were people who were, didn't worship God. In fact, they, they got involved in deplorable um, sacrifices, sexual immorality, child sacrifices, part of their false religion. They were horrible, evil kind of culture, and uh, they were under God's right judgment. And in the middle, you've got what Rahab, who was a prostitute. So she was even kind of bottom of the social ladder of the people who were bottom of it, kind of before God. Yet within that, she showed favor to God's people. She showed faith in God. She repented. She put her trust in him and eventually she was saved and she became part of God's people. And so what we've got is we've got a pagan outsider who puts their faith and trust in Jesus and is saved through what Joshua's is kind of teaching. And on this, on, and what we've got now is a parallel is we've got one of God's people who chooses to disobey and go against God. So effectively we always have a role reversal from here. The pagan puts their faith in God and the member of God's people chooses not to put his faith and trust in God. And as a result, and he chooses to go after another God, which is his own gratification, and he steals his stuff. The second thing we can learn from here is sin affects those around you. Achan was the one who did it. It's very clear there. But how is he identified? If you follow the first verse, what's it say? He said he's the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. From the tribe of, he's identifying with a whole area of God's people. Actually, it wasn't just him who sinned. Actually, it was, had a repercussions on the entire people. It's like when you have toothache. Have you ever had toothache? Last Christmas, I think it was last Christmas, just before Christmas, I got a terrible toothache in kind of one part up here. And I remember having to get an emergency. You know one of those ones you phone up in the morning and say, I need to see the dentist now. Well, we can do one o'clock. No, I won't make it till one o'clock. I need to see them now because if I don't die, someone around me might die. You know, it's just it's that bad. And I remember going into the, getting, going into the dentist and they, they looked in my mouth and it was this lady dentist who was very nice and she said and she kind of put her finger sort of is it here as I left the chair kind of like ah and, and then she gave me some drug where are the drugs and she, I didn't realize I could give you drugs but they gave me drugs and I went and got them and it, it calmed down but the irony is it was only one part of my body a really tiny part actually when you think about it but yeah it affected everything Walking, talking, thinking, moving was a struggle. Concentrate when you've got this throbbing pain in your head. And it's like that with sin. You might think it's just a little sin. It's just in one part of my life. It's just over here. Rubbish. It has consequences on everything. And the same with Achan's sin here in what it happened. It has consequences on the entire people. Let's look at the next bit. Back to your Bible. What's it say? Okay, so Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Now, they don't know what's happened. That was kind of an aside, verse 1. So they're continuing on what they think God's asked us to do, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not, ha- uh, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. It was clearly quite small by comparison to Jericho. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. 
So about 3,000 men went up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them from before the gate as far as Sherebin and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So what happens? Defeat. The second one, defeat. Sin leads to spiritual defeat. So the people of God, ignorant of what's happened in verse 1, apart from Achan and those around him, they carry on with it. They think, well, Ai is the next thing. We'll go and take that. That's part of the land. The spies come back very optimistic. It's only a small place. We don't need all of the fighting men to go out there. just a small contingent. They can go and take them. What happens? They go up. They attack them, and it's utter defeat. They are routed. They have to run. And in the process, it says around 36 of the soldiers are killed. That's 36 men, husband, fathers, brothers, killed in this engagement. So what they thought was going to be an easy, quote, victory turned out to be a feat, and there are bodies on the ground now. So there is abject defeat on the part of um, Israel, and they run before them. And the result of that, the reason we know as the readers, why did this happen? Well, they, they've set it up for us. What happened is what happened in verse 1. There's been sin in the people that has affected them. So when they go and try and advance in God's purposes, they come undone and they come unstuck. And actually, what, after they've had a massive victory in Jericho, is now defeated by something that comparatively is so much smaller and so much easier. And they end up in total defeat. What's the result? The next section. It says this, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Despair. Total despair on the part of Joshua and his leaders. What we learn from this is sin takes the glory away from God. Sin takes the glory away from God. His re- Joshua's response to what had happened was dramatic. He fell on his face. He mourned in God's presence. They put dust on their heads. They were going into battle and they were utterly defeated by their enemy. Military defeat led to a spiritual turmoil. They started questioning what's going on. Why are we here? On, in Joshua's defense, one good side was he did take it to God. I think that, do you notice he was before the ark of the Lord, which represents God's presence? He was in God's presence, but his turmoil was real. It echoes some of the stuff that the people of God had done in the wilderness, kind of almost moaning before God. He's basically saying, God, why did you bring us here only to get wiped out, only to get defeated? You brought us across the Jordan. We've defeated Jericho, and now we're facing this little force, and we're just getting defeated. People are dying. Why didn't you just leave us on the other side of the river, they're saying. We'd have been okay there. And then interestingly, he brings it back. He's got a couple of concerns. What he said? First one is there's a, a concern over the survival of the nation. They're going to get wiped out. They're kind of a nomadic people coming into this land. They haven't settled. And actually, they're going to get wiped out. But the point he also made is over God's reputation, over God's name, over God's glory. He said, if we're wiped out, all the people round about 
who will say that actually you're God, you're a weak God. You've got no power, you've got no authority, you can't do it because we'll be wiped out. Your name will be cut off because God's name, God's people bear God's name. And if they're failing and get it wrong, it only reflects on God, it reflects on him. He's the one who's meant to get the glory. And if we're failing and mucking up, actually you're not getting the glory you deserve, Lord. And that's his concern in his turmoil of what it is. And interestingly, he goes to God and he tries to kind of question with God. It doesn't seem to cross his mind at this point that actually sin could be a problem. He's not, he just, he's questioning God. Why have you brought us here to wipe us all out? There are people dying. What's going on um, in that? And then we get God speaks into it. So let's have the next section here. Then the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Note Israel, not Achan. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. There's that stepping across the boundary that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted, devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. I think, is there more for that one? Is that that? Okay, next thing, Direction. There is more, is there? Oh, let me do the next one. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And, that, and he who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. All right, God speaks direction. Joshua and the leaders are before God thinking, what's going on? God decides to speak, and he gives very clear directions. That first kind of words there, get up. They're strong words. They're the words of direction, words of command. Words of, well, something's got to be done. It's time to take action. It's time to do something about it. And he extends to the entire nation. Israel of sin. There's a corporate dynamic, which is why in verse 1, Achan is identified with being part of a clan and a household and a family and a tribe, etc. It's actually it's all Israel's responsibility. They've transgressed. They've crossed this line that God said, you can do this, you can't do this. They've deliberately crossed it. It says he's taken, he's stolen. He's taken things that belong to God. And sin must be dealt with. We also find that sin means separation from God. In response to Israel's sin and what they've done and their rebellion and their transgressions, God's basically said, I can't be with you. Why? Because God is holy. God is pure. God is just. He cannot tolerate wrong in his presence. He cannot tolerate sin. It's not something you just brush under the carpet and let go. This is an offense. He said, I can no longer be with you. God's standards are absolute, and they cannot be kind of fudged for anyone or anything. So he's saying, no, I can't be with you. He has an absolute standard of holiness. And then the last thing there, we see sin requires judgment. Now, this is really uncomfortable. Sin must be dealt with. There were devoted items from Jericho, their previous encounter, which were devoted and holy to God. Someone has taken them. Someone had stolen them. 
And I just said, something needs to be done with it. Something needs to be dealt with it. And God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deal with it. And he's, he, he puts out a plan. He says, you're going to bring all the people before me. And bit by bit, I'm going to narrow it down. He knows what's, hap- what's going on. And he says, I will be the one in control. And I will bring this. And I will bring judgment on the perpetrator of this crime. Whoever's transgressed the government. Government. And the interesting thing about this idea of God's judgment, in one sense we find it extremely uncomfortable, but in another sense we find it perfectly normal. In fact, actually we encourage it and we want it. Because if you just, just look at the news, just reflect back on the news over the past few years, what's current. When we see terrible news of terrorist atrocities, things happening, people dying, Our response inside, an internal response is, the perpetrators of this crime need to be found and punished. That's kind of a natural response. This is wrong. There's something not right about this. This is an evil, despicable act. And those who would seek to do this must come under some form of justice, whatever that justice is we think it is. A few years back, we had um, the MP's expenses scandals. Who remembers that? People lost their positions, people went to jail, and there was a public outcry that these trusted leaders who had been elected were abusing their position and lining their own pockets with it. Again, our response was, you really felt that, I remember that, the feeling, the grounds were, how dare they? And as a result, you know, there was criminal trials and prosecutions, and the same thing, same thing happened. We want that justice. What's happening right now in Hollywood that the lid's being lifted off and you're seeing the vile underbelly of sexual harassment and people's careers are ending and stuff. But the same idea, they can't get away with this. It must stop. There must be punishment. So we're perfectly comfortable with it until it's about us. Until it's about us. Until the light is shined on our life. And then the excuses come. Yeah, but... He was really mean to me, so I did this back to him. They never liked me anyway. No one will know. I wasn't hurting anyone. All these excuses come out. But actually, when it's about something else somewhere else, we're all for it until it comes to us. But God's not like that. God judges all equally, and he will judge sin across the board. doesn't matter who you are. Sin requires judgment. And even in God's people, which is what Israel were. They were his chosen, special, loved people. But there was sin in it. And God says, I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with that. So let's, you can feel the tension rising. God said, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal this sin. And we get to the next section. Verse 16. It says, so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken Remember verse 1, Achan was from the tribe of Judah. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerahites, man by man. And Zobdi was taken, and he brought near the household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Dabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver 
and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. What do we learn from this? Sin must be exposed. Achan was methodically identified. He was caught in the act, if you will. And there was like a spotlight which kind of, I guess, started big and then got narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower till you finally get the National Lottery moment. It's you, which I imagine must have been utterly terrifying knowing that God's hand was coming towards him for what he does. Joshua addresses him. He assumes leadership in the role. He calls him my son. He's he's the leader over God's people. And he gives him some command. He says, give glory to God. Give praise to him. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And basically he's saying, you need to confess your sins. Caught in the act. What it, what it is you do, which can be in, in itself incredibly difficult. Being a school teacher, I remember catching kids in the act and they still denied it. You know, they were, you catch them red-handed where they shouldn't be, doing something they shouldn't be. And they're still like, no, I'm not, I'm not here, they say to me. I'm like, what do you mean you're not here? You're, you're there. No, I'm not. You have these kind of odd conversations with them. But he was being completely exposed, caught red-handed. That's it. You are there. And the, the, the next thing, sin must be owned. Sin must be owned. He, Achan confesses his guilt and even gives the details of the crime. This is what I did. This is what happened. And if we reflect on him, as far as I can tell, Achan broke the eighth commandment, which was stealing. He broke the tenth commandment, which was coveting, wanting something. He broke the explicit commandments of God from chapter 6, saying, don't take the stuff that you, from Jericho. It's for me. He's also brought... Um, there's a commandment in Leviticus about lying, which he's done that. He's also, which is the ninth commandment, about thou shalt not lie. And then um, the first commandment, which you should have no other God before me. His God was he his himself and the money and the gratification that bought and, and, and those possessions. And so he's basically done a whole litany of things. And the interesting thing here is we have a parallel with the garden. If you listen to what he said, it's a parallel with what Adam and Eve said to God in the garden. We saw it, we wanted it, and we took it. Nothing new under heaven. What was in the beginning is still going on hundreds and hundreds of years later. He saw it, he took it, he uh, saw he wanted it, and he took it. And then what we got at the end of that part of the passage there is the, the items were returned to their rightful own, in essence, weren't they? Who, who do they belong to? They belong to God. And they were brought out and brought back effectively to God's presence for the people. And actually, these are God's, these things. They, are, they don't belong to you. So we have the discovery there. And then we have the last one, the fateful end of the story. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, his ox and his donkeys, and his sheep and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means Valley of Trouble. 
The, puni- um, the last thing that we can learn is that sin must be punished. We've touched on that already. Sin must be punished. The punishment in this case is severe, extremely severe. But what this shows us is the demands of God and the absolute holiness of God. God is completely, utterly holy, which is beyond really our understanding. This other, this separate, this purity that he is so far above us. He cannot stand sin in his presence. In fact, to be in his presence, to be sin actually is to be destroyed because of who he is, his nature. And we've got the tragic end of Achan. He sacrificed himself and his family on the altar of instant gratification. I want it. I want it now. And I will take it and hang the consequences. And the consequences were devastating. The irony, the terrible, terrible irony is if you read chapter 8 and they take Ai, what does God say to the people? You can have it all. You can have it all. Take whatever you want. If he had waited 24 hours, different story. It's literally like that. That's, and he made that decision, and it haunts him and destroyed him. A little bit of notes about the family. You might think, oh, that's a bit severe. Commentators have gone back and forth on why this is the case. One of the possibilities is actually that they were complicit. He lived in a tent. He, bought, he nicked a lot of gold and a lot of other stuff, and he buried it under the tent. Someone's got to notice. Someone's got to say something. Someone's got to say, uh, uh, what are you doing with that stuff? This great cloak, these piles of silver, this big bar of gold. We don't know. But what we do know is sin has consequences. There is no such thing as private sin. It just doesn't work like that. It has incredible consequences on your life. You might think, well, I'm the only one who knows about it. Then you're like my son, putting his hands over his eyes and saying, Daddy, you can't see me. It is idiotic and ridiculous. God knows everything. It says in Psalm 139, something we would quote when we see baby Ethan, I formed you. I formed you in your mummy's womb. I built you. I put you together. And we'd be like, oh, God loves me. Yeah, but he knows you. He knows everything about you. Even the mess, even the bad stuff, even the stuff you're trying to hide. It is terrible. And Achan forgot the generous nature of God. He forgot the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. That had brought him that far. He was actually standing in the land of promise. He was actually living in God's inheritance for him. He'd seen Jericho fall. He'd seen the Jordan part. He'd lived off manna and quail in the wilderness that God had provided. He was there. He'd seen it all, and he blew it all for a bar of gold that he'd hidden. And he had the terrible, terrible consequences of it. And he was destroyed as a, as a, as a result. And it said they piled up a pile. There was a big pile of stones. When was the last time we saw a pile of stones? When they crossed the Jordan, two chapters beforehand. And what was that a reminder of? God's grace, God's provision, God's mercy, God's power. And now we've got another pile of stones which show actually that grace, mercy, and power cannot be trifled with. You don't get to try and hide things from God. Sin must be dealt with. We have to repent. We have to turn away. And the valley now is known as the valley of troubles. It's, it's known for the wrong reason, if you will. Something terrible happened there because of the sin of man. And all that that's about. 
Okay, four things, four quick application points to finish. What does this mean for us today? How are we going to kind of earth this? Number one, give thanks for Jesus. Give thanks for Jesus. In him, our sin is completely dealt with. That is good news. That is the good news of the Christian message. That is the good news of the Bible. Jesus, we talked about in the Christmas series, he was born in a manger. He came to earth. God came to earth. God became a man. He lived a life just like we have. He went through every trial, test, and temptation we have gone through and we will go through. He grew up as a man and he was perfect. He was sinless in every way. Having read that story, it takes on a different dynamic, that truth. He avoided all of those things. Yet at the end, he was betrayed. He was um, tried by a, a mockery of a court and he was murdered. Why? Because he was doing it in our place. That judgment he was under should have been ours. That sin that he was punished for was ours. It definitely wasn't his. And then he rose to life victorious three days later, breaking the power of sin, breaking the power of death, and offering new life to all who will have it. And so as a result of that, we are not exposed, defeated, and separated from God. Instead, we are loved, and we are holy, and we are righteous, and we are children of God because of what he did, not because of what we've done. And all that takes is faith and trust in him. Repentance, turning away from our old way of life, forsaking our sinful attitudes, our sinful tendency to saying, God, I'm going to live for you. I'm not going to live for me. You're not, you're, I, I, my God of my life isn't my work or my stuff or what I'm trying to do. It's actually your God, your number one, and I'm going to live for you. And Jesus faced that terrible judgment, so we don't have to. And that is a reason to give thanks And if you're a believer here today, you're a Christian, that is something to praise God at the tops of your voice and celebrate and just enjoy. If you're not a believer here, I encourage you, say, come to Jesus. He's calling you. Come to me. I will deal with this. I will help you. I will save you from the punishment that you rightly deserve, that we all rightly deserve. Second thing, take sin seriously. In the story, it was literally life and death. And if you're here and you're playing with sin, it is literally life and death, spiritual life and death. It can literally mean death for you. Some of the things you play with can actually get you killed. We did the Proverbs series and there are consequences of sin we found out. Sometimes violent consequences if you steal or you commit adultery, all these things. Actually, there can be something come back against you. Take it seriously. There's no such thing as a little sin. There's no such thing as a minor sin. There's no such thing. It's all there and it's all serious before God. White lies don't exist. Lies do. <laughs> and God's very explicit about what that. So take it seriously. Don't belittle it. Don't, don't put it down and ignore it. Say, oh, it's nothing. It's not. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable before God. And it never will be. The third one. We are to confess our sins. We are to own it and acknowledge it. We are not to wait till like Achan, we are caught. We are to confess it. We are to acknowledge it. For me, two of the most important verses in the Bible are this. I know these by heart. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. will forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you don't know those verses, you should write them down and make it a daily habit to remember them and to do that every day. Confess our sins. Keep a short account with God. Bring things to God. Turn away from them. I'm sorry for that. Own it. It's also good when you confess your sins to be brutally specific. Joshua asked Achan to do that. In one sense, it was largely irrelevant. You know, God's just picked you out from about a million people. We know it's you because God's it's you. Sorry, Mike. You. You know, we all know. Everyone's looking on. But he just, Joshua still said to him, what do you do? You know, what? We need to confess our sins and we need to be specific. Saying, I'm sorry, God, for my sin is actually a little of a cop-out. I'm sorry, for, I'm sorry that I lied. I cheated. I belittled. I was cruel. I was unkind. I was vicious. I stole that. I, I did that. Whatever it was, I covered that up. Be specific about your sin. Confess it. And live in the light of the good news that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not because we're good or we're better than the next person, because of Jesus and what he's done. Last one. Stay in community. Stay in the community. When we mess up, and we will all do that at some point, the last thing we want to do is be around Christians. Oh, they're so annoying when you know you've sinned. You just don't want to be there. You want to run away. You want to get away. You don't want to come to church. You don't want to go to a life group. You don't. The reason is because the presence of God is there, and he's pushing on something. But let me tell you, it's the worst thing you can do, run away. The single worst thing you can do is remove yourself from, from God's people. You'll believe the lie that they won't understand or they've never gone through it. Trust me, they're worse than you. They've done all this stuff as well. It's not like we get to stand in judgment on each other. And it's what the enemy wants. He wants to separate you. He wants to shove you out. He wants to put you away. And we need to be around people to, to confess our sins, to seek help, to get free, to get prayer, to walk alongside people and say, yep, I've messed up in that area too. I know what that's like. Let me walk with you. Let me pray with you. Let me text you regularly and say, hey, how's it going? Let me help you and move forward. And being in community is key to that and actually walking with us together. So many of the things in the Bible and the New Testament you read are about one another, love one another, confess our sins to one another, take care of one another, pray for one another. Ugh. One another, we need to be people. We need to have our life groups. We need to have those contexts that we get together. It's vital that we stay in community. Okay, we're going to stand there. We're going to, sorry, we're going to stop there and you're going to stand up. Thank you. Um, and we're going to pray and then we're going to worship God. Told you it wouldn't be straightforward, that one. Next, next week's better, trust me. Come next week and it's, you know, it's a little bit, way. All right. We're going to sing in a moment and put our eyes on Jesus and give thanks for our wonderful Savior. But let's just take a moment before God and do some business. Maybe you want to close your eyes. <laughs> close your eyes. This is, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to dig for this. If God's been dealing with something with you right now, you know it. It's right now. You've been shifting in your chair you've been uncomfortable you're hoping to god i don't look at you and point at you or say something you know there's something in your life that you need dealing with so let's deal with it now let's just take it to god 
All it requires from you is, uh, is to acknowledge it. This is what it is. To, conf- to repent of it. To turn around. So that means confess it. This is what it is. Turn around. And then to walk out of that. And then that might mean talking to someone. That might mean going and kind of making something right or apologizing or whatever it is. But there, there's a battle you do first, which is your battle with God. And once you've done that, the rest of it can come after that. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity now to confess your sins to God. You don't have to do it out loud, as in we're not expecting you to yell it out or anything, but just talk to God right now. Bring it to him. Name it. Be specific. Repent of it. Turn away. Say you're sorry. I don't want to do that. And accept the forgiveness and the grace of God. And if there are things you need to do after it, it would be good to tell someone and say, look, this is what God dealt with and just move forward. You know what it is. Do not believe the lies that A, he can forgive you, or B, it don't matter. It matters and he can forgive you. His grace is enough. If you're not a believer here and you, need to, you know that that's an, the thing for you, we'd love to talk to you at the end and kind of help you with that. But for you, it's not necessarily a specific thing. It's actually a life thing. I, want to, I need to repent of the way I've been living my life and put my faith and trust in Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to help you with that. We'd love to pray with you and introduce you to our Lord and Savior who loves you so very much. If you've confessed your sins right now and you know you've done that, I can say with full authority of God's word that you have been forgiven. You have been forgiven. You are holy and righteous before him. You are his beloved children. He is your father in heaven. He loves you. He wants to know you. He, he just adores you. He's crazy. There is nothing to stop you worshiping him now and raising your hands and say, God, you are amazing. You're not like a suddenly a second-class Christian and you can only raise your hands halfway because you don't feel worthy. No. On Jesus' death and resurrection, you are righteous and holy before him. And he loves you and he, he just he wants to know you. So we're going to worship God now. He might say some other stuff he wants us to deal with or do, but we're going to just put our eyes on him and praise him because he alone is worthy and he alone has saved us. Amen? Amen.